First Peter chapter 3 is not necessarily a chapter, at least I would pick if I was just picking a chapter out of the Bible to, to come down here and teach on a Sunday morning, but it's where I'm working through as I fill in once in a while in uh, Calvary Chapel. So, so that's where we're going to work through, First Peter chapter 3. Now, this chapter starts with some instruction for wives and husbands, which, which really is something I would steer away from if I'm picking a chapter <laughs> for a Sunday morning and uh, not being a, a, what you would call a veteran preacher by any means. You know, I like to leave it up to the senior guys to deal with this stuff. But this, this, like I said, this is where I'm working through. And I think one of the really beneficial things about working through the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, is when there's a section that the pastor would rather not deal with, that's too bad because that's the next chapter, so we'll work through it. So, so we see this chapter starts with wives and husbands, and actually even and it, it hits a couple other things, and and it finishes off with a with a, some verses that are a little bit um, tough to get an exact interpretation on. So we'll look at them at the end of the chapter. I actually considered breaking this chapter in half or maybe starting in chapter 2 because it ties in. But as I considered it and prayed about it, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go through chapter 3. Right away I'm going to say, you know what, you're going to have to do some homework on this if you want to really get to the meat of the whole chapter. We're going to cover some of it, uh, you know, fairly comprehensively and some of it due to time. We're, we're just going to kind of scratch the surface really unless we were to spend an extra hour, which we won't. So that will be your homework to really, to really dig in, is to, to look closer at parts of this chapter and really um, see what God is trying to speak to you directly by His Holy Spirit. Now, when it comes to teachings for husbands and wives, really for me I'm more comfortable talking to the husbands because... I know how men think, and I can apply the instruction to myself. I like to share what God has been laying on my heart with you. And, and the other thing is I don't feel like I'm going to say something which I'm going to pay for, which you guys can probably understand. Um, the beauty of God's Word is that God created both men and women, and He knows how we function and operate. He established the family, uh, he established the home and how it's to run. His word is inspired by his Holy Spirit. So even though we read a letter written by Peter the fisherman, who often said the wrong thing, we see early on in his uh, relationship with the Lord as a young believer, he writes here as a mature believer, inspired by the Lord. Now we'll see that wives get... Six verses of instruction, and the husbands only get one, which may seem unfair. Uh, there is, however, a lot of uh, meaning in that one verse, as we'll see. And I think Peter knew that men tend to tune out very quickly, like after a couple sentences. So, guys, when we get to you, try and 
Hang in there. Let's read verses 1 and 2. It says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. In order to correctly understand this chapter, chapter 3, we must remember it's a continuation of chapter 2. Peter's letter was not written with verses or chapter divisions. And in the second half of chapter 2, Peter's instruction has been to do good, even if it means suffering for it. Submit to those who are in authority over us. Fear God. Honor everyone. Uh, specifically, he pointed to obeying the emperor, which would be the government. Uh, slaves obeying their masters. And, and even if it involved suffering for doing good or for obeying. And he held up Christ as our example to follow. Now here he addresses Christian wives, and specifically he makes a, uh, he singles out here those who have unbelieving husbands. He's talking to all wives, but he kind of has this little thing for those with unbelieving husbands as well. He mentions them specifically because in that culture, wives and children automatically accepted the husband's beliefs. Uh, so to commit to Christ in that culture without their husband doing so would have been a very radical and difficult situation for them. As it is a difficult situation today when one spouse believes and the other does not. So verse 1 we see begins with the word likewise. And so it refers to the previous verses. In chapter 2, verse 21, it says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So Jesus put others first. We see that in his life. He suffered and he died for us. He saved us from the debt we owed for our own sin. And, and then he also laid out an example for us of how to live a day-to-day -day life. So Peter here tells wives to be subject to or submit to their husbands. And then specifically for those who have unbelieving husbands, he points out it's not what you say that will convince your husband to accept the Lord but it is your actions that will show, show him or draw him to God. Now, the word submit and the idea of submitting to someone is not appealing to us. And you know, I don't think it appealed to anyone in Peter's day either. Uh, human nature is the same now as it was then. It hasn't changed. We like to get our own way and we resist being told what to do. We like to have the final say in things, don't we? For the most part. In our marriages, there can be a striving against each other as to who has the final say on matters. You know, and some things aren't a big deal. 
to us, but there's, there, things come up, don't they, where we want to have the final say. Now, from God's perspective, I believe what he wants is he is to have the final say. And he lays out the best way to realize that in our relationships, in his word. So, we see here, wives are to submit to their husband as part of the order God has laid out for their marriage and for their home. This, however, is just one part of your overall submission to the Lord. Now, submitting to your husband does not imply a lesser value on wives. There is equality in importance, equality in dignity, equality in honor. We see in Jesus' life that he was subject to his parents and he was subject to God the Father, but he was not lower than either one of them. Also, we should note that Peter says, be subject to your own husband, not to men in general. We see in God's word his commanded principles for male leadership in the home and in the church, but not for society in general. And while we may in our day and age question that, I believe God really does know what he's doing. And I think in thinking of men, if there's two areas where men seem to tend or like to slack off and shirk their responsibility, it's in their homes and in the church. There's a responsibility on husbands here, but we'll cover that in verse 7. Verses 3 and 4. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of your hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. We know that the world says beauty is what we see on the outside. Uh, whether it's hair, or makeup, clothing, jewelry, all these things, that's what, uh, there is great importance put on these things, these adornings, and how much time, money, uh, effort is spent trying to fit into a certain mold in our, in our culture. The instruction here is very clear, it's simple. Don't make outer adornments. Uh, be your focus. Instead, realize beauty isn't something you can wear or put on. Beauty, instead, is something that you are. It's something inside of us. Peter does not forbid these things, these adornments. Um, there's nothing wrong with them in particular, but they are not to be considered the source of your beauty, nor I, I don't think there's supposed to be a focus or a lot of effort or energy put into these things. We see here that a gentle and quiet spirit is precious in God's sight and it's imperishable, meaning it does not fade. It goes on. The qualities that the world would promote, they fade. But a gentle and quiet spirit these things are held up here and they are pleasing to God. And you know, if we want to find a model of a gentle and quiet spirit, 
we can look to Jesus. He laid that example out for us. Now with inner beauty, the source, of course, is Jesus. That's where we find true inner beauty. That's where it comes from. If a person is centered on Jesus, that's where that comes from. Uh, inner beauty will never cease or fade. It's based in truth and love. The outer beauty the world promotes, uh, it's false, it's fleeting. At the base of it, it's all, um, the core of it's all uh, lies and selfishness. Again, the adornments themselves are not wrong, but they really, they're of no value whatsoever. Verses 5 and 6. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So it's verses like this that I would prefer to skip. Um, I wonder sometimes at the wording guys like Peter used at times, but... You know, in going through God's word, my desire, our desire, I trust, is to understand God's mind on these matters and, and look for the, what he's trying to speak into our lives. So here Peter likens a wife's submission to her husband to an adornment she wears, something that's pleasing to God. Does it mean being a slave? No, it does not. Does it mean disobeying God because your husband says to? No, it does not. Your, your responsibility is to God first. In context, we all submit to God first and foremost in our lives. Now the question, do wives have to refer to their husbands as Lord? I would say to the wives in our, our culture, it's an attitude of respect a wife should have for her husband's role or authority in the home. To husbands, I would say, if you wish to have your wife refer to you as Lord, you deserve what you get. <laughs> if you want to try and let me know how it goes. <laughs> Peter sums up these two verses by saying, you are Sarah's children, or you will follow her example of holiness if you do good and do not fear that which is frightening or could be frightening. Now doing good, that's easy to understand. Really, it's also uh, easy to acknowledge. It's tougher to apply day to day, doing good. Do not fear. Where he says, when he says that, I believe it's linked to, if we look at chapter 2, verse 23, it says, Speaking of Jesus, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus faced a very difficult situation going to the cross for us. He entrusted himself to his Father in heaven. And it's entrusting your situation to God that Peter's referring to here when he talks about fearing or not fearing. So entrust your situation to God. Obey God. Wives, 
what it's saying here, submit to your husband out of obedience to God and don't fear the outcome. It's obeying God and he will, and entrusting yourself to him. God judges justly. He will look after you when you obey him. And that applies to all of us in all areas of obedience. Now verse 7 I've got a dry throat this morning. Sorry. Verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. First of all, before we get into this, it's not the husband's job to make his wife be subject to him. That's not in the text. I know that's a area where human nature wants to, uh, I would say, abuse the text at times, and that's where one tries to take instruction for the other and make that person, uh, you know, point out you're not following God's instruction here. Well, that's Peter encourages wives to be subject to their husbands. He doesn't encourage husbands to make sure their wives are subject to them. So I just point that out. So only one verse specifically for husbands, but there's a lot of application we can see here. Again, this verse starts with likewise, so keep in mind the instruction of chapter 2, which is of submission in general to authority, and keep in mind the example of Jesus and that overall submission to God. Peter addresses four areas of responsibility husbands have in regards to their wives. First, it says, living with those words, living with your wife. Or as the King James says, dwell with your wife. A godly husband doesn't just share a home with his wife. He truly must live with her, abide with her, dwell with her. Husbands, we have to spend quality time with our wives. And I've got to tell you, before going through all of this, this is one of those chapters that really convicted me of my own need to follow God's word directly in my life. I think all of us, we need encouragement and we need uh, reminders of how to live and, and follow God's instruction for us. So, having said that, you know, we have to spend that quality time with our wives. And if our homes are just too busy, uh, you know, whether it's jobs or kids or sports or church even or hobbies or the list could go on and on, if we're just too busy, then in husbands, we we better make some changes. That's our responsibility. And that doesn't mean just inviting your wife to watch the game with you. That, that doesn't count. If she wants to watch, fine. Make sure you know her and stop being selfish, really. I think that sums it up. Second, we see we're told to live in an understanding way. A godly husband will undertake the... In, important job 
of understanding his wife. And that's right, I did say understand, and as guys we say, you know, that's, well, that's impossible. And it's difficult. It's impossible if we put in zero effort, which I believe is, as men, our natural tendency. And I think the wives suspected that all along, guys. But, you know, I, we, we tend to, to, to not want to put in effort on these things at times. We have to communicate, spend time, abide with our wives, notice her mood, ask questions, be interested, pray for her and pray with her. These things will help us to understand. We have to get our eyes off ourselves or whatever things we're interested in, which is ourselves. And then as you gain some understanding, apply it as you live with your wife. Third, we need to show honor to our wives. The context of this reference to a weaker vessel is in the physical sense, as most men are physically stronger than their wives. And so there then is the opportunity for abuse. It's clear that physical strength is not to be used to any sort of advantage. Showing honor means as husbands we should be treating our wives as someone who is precious. And you know, this is much easier, again, one of those things that's so much easier to acknowledge as being true than it is to put into practice day to day. It also means a husband respects his wife's desires, thinking, feelings, and opinions. Not always agreeing with, certainly, but recognizing and respecting the value. I was reminded this week, uh, Genesis, it's Genesis 2.18 where it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And I, I think the obvious place my mind goes to that is um, Adam was lonely, so God created for him a helper. I, you know, I was kind of thinking, well, actually, maybe God was looking at Adam and saying he wasn't going to make out that well uh, on his own without a helper. So I would suggest from, from my own experience, even, guys, that we get used to the idea that our wives are often right. And she was given to you, remember, because you need her and because you're not very bright. <laughs> like I said, I speak from experience. Um, I'm kind of kidding, but not totally. <laughs> Husbands and wives were a team, all right? One description I came across says this. The husband must be the thermostat in the home, setting the emotional and spiritual temperature. The wife often is the thermometer, letting him know what the temperature is. Both are necessary. The husband who is sensitive to his wife's feelings will not only make her happy, but will also grow himself and help his children to live in a home that honors God. I thought that made sense. 
and I think I see that being true in my own home, my wife is much more sensitive to the temperature, what is going on over a broad aspect in our home, in our family. It is then, however, my responsibility under God to do something when that temperature is wrong. So things like, there's a long list, but things like reading the Bible, prayer, family devotions, these things spiritually are my responsibility in our home. Along with providing, and there's a long list. But how often are we guilty of wanting our wives to submit to us over trivial, non-spiritual or kingdom issues while we ignore the important areas of our lives. So, husbands, we need the input of our wives. Fourth, there's a spiritual responsibility. We are spiritually equal as our wives are heirs with us. Our wives are our sisters in Christ. When it comes to the grace of God, we are joint heirs. We must love our wives and take up the responsibility of being spiritual leaders in our homes. God has, has uh, laid that responsibility on husbands. And, you know, if you decide not to, you're not off the hook. It is a God-given responsibility. And uh, just even speaking personally, it's, you know, over the years... Um, I've noticed there's times when my wife is very much right. She'll come to me and say, you know, I think we need to be doing this, need to be doing that. And my, my instant reaction will be to um, get defensive or something like that, especially when she's right, because that would mean I'm wrong. But it's then, you know, it becomes my responsibility to consider that and address that with her. But husbands, I believe we need to be the ones that really pick up the ball, whether we initiate on our own or whether our wives come to us and say, I, you know, I think this is an area of concern within our home. So, Peter says, and getting back to the verses, Peter says, follow this instruction that we see in verse 7, so your prayers will not be hindered. He uses that phrase. The warning here is we as godly husbands need to put into practice these things or the indication is God will not hear our prayers. And this is a really, that's a serious uh, consequence if you will. It says that your prayers would not be hindered. Now some may not have any prayers to go unheard. I hope that's not the case. I don't know where we think we're going to end up if we aren't seeking the Lord and just praying for His blessing, His direction in our lives, His guidance. Uh, we need that. We are not one thing I become aware of when I look at the scripture is that I am not capable of, on my own of um, so many things, but in context of what we're looking at here, I'm not capable on my own of leading my own home. I need 
the Lord's help, the Lord's direction. I need to be praying with him or to him, praying with my wife in order to succeed and glorify God. So we need to be praying and we need to be spiritual leaders in our homes. Uh, this is serious business. Now, as husbands and wives, we should look at our own roles before God and fulfill them. And if we see our partner not fulfilling their role, or we don't think they are, we still need to fulfill our role to the best of our ability. Uh, we're not to look at our spouse's role as being easier, or, as your, or your own role as being unfair. Seek to honor each other and obey the Lord. I would say also in a marriage, sometimes we hear the 50-50 kind of relationship thing. I was reminded not too long ago, it's not a 50-50. That doesn't work. It's a 100-100. That's what we have to put into it. And we have to assess too, because sometimes our 100 may look like 25 to the other person. Um, don't fight over who is the greatest. Instead, look to serve. We, if we see something in Jesus' life, it's if you want to be the greatest, be the least. Um, church don't, churches don't split because everyone's fighting over who can serve the most or who can be the least or the last. It's the same in our marriages. Don't look to be the greatest. Look to serve. Um, put self-interest aside. Yeah, easy to say, easy to agree with, hard to put into practice, I know. But that's the reality. Verses 8 and 9. Moving on here. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble, humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary... Bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Here we have a plea, or perhaps really a command for love and unity amongst God's people. Now, unity of mind, I believe, often seems to kind of move to the place of getting people to think like me. And that's not what this is uh, talking about. It's not trying to convince others to see things my way so that then we have unity of mind. That's pushing your own agenda. It's, a, it's not about what we want. Instead, we are to have the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.16, I'm going to read... It says, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But, but we have the mind of Christ. So that's the goal, to have the mind of Christ and be united in that. So how do we have the mind of Christ? Well, first of all, we need to know God's word. For it reveals to us the mind of Jesus or his character. And we need to remember we are not all the same. We belong to one body. It's the body of Christ. It's a church. But we are different parts, and we have different personalities, and we function in different ways. But we are to function 
in unity under the mind of Christ, and therefore in harmony. If we don't have the mind of Christ, if we aren't submitted to him and seeking to obey him, then we end up with something that's chaotic and starts to look quite worldly at times. So united under the, the mind of Christ, sub, submitted to him, uh, following his example. Peter also mentioned some other qualities we are to have. Sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. These things are all characteristics of love, which we are commanded to have for each other. We're commanded to love one another. In John 13, 35, Jesus says, By this all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So, really the proof is in our actions. Verse 9 is a reminder to follow the example of Jesus that we see in chapter 2. Don't mistreat those who mistreat you. The context in chapter 3 is amongst believers, whereas in chapter 2, if you read through that, it was uh, when unbelievers abuse us. Here it's amongst the believers. So the fact is that even within the church, body there can be disputes or personality conflicts or mistakes made if we strive to follow these commands we're given the disputes or arguments should be small and short-lived we are to love each other and not just in this fellowship of believers but also those within other churches we are the body of Christ is not just this church or another church down the road. It is the church within this world. Um, you know, I've observed over the years, there's often striving, competing, or disagreement. It can be within a church, but between churches, and really that is so very unfortunate. It's something we should, uh, we don't want to be guilty of. Over and over, Peter makes the same point uh, in chapter 2 and here in chapter 3. Return evil with good. If someone treats you wrong, treat them well. Never return evil with evil. Here he says, bless those who mistreat you and you will be blessed. It may be hard, but there is a promise from God of blessing if we do it. And we rebel against the idea of doing good to someone who's mistreated us. I think we look back again in chapter 2 where we see Christ entrusting himself to his Father in heaven when he faced a situation that was very difficult. When we obey God and trust ourselves to him, he'll look after the situation. If we decide to do what our nature tells us to do, then we're looking after the situation and will probably suffer the consequences of that. Verses 10 through 12. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. 
So here Peter quotes Psalm 34, 12 through 16, which points out the blessing of doing good rather than evil. First, don't deceive or lie. Instead, turn away from that and all evil and do good in your life. The trouble is for us that evil or sin so often has some kind of instant gratification and the regret trails on or comes later. While doing good so often is difficult for us and its result or reward comes later. But the fact is we end up blessed when we respond with good when we are treated evil. Verse 12 reminds us God's eyes are on us and he hears our prayers as we follow him but he is against those who do evil. Peter has already warned husbands who don't honor their wives that their prayers will be hindered. And you know, I don't know exactly what that means, but it's not good, right? Whether you won't hear at all, or, but they're hindered. And so here we should be careful about willingly disobeying God and hanging on to evil in our lives as it will affect our relationship with God. And by that I mean we must agree with God as he instructs us. Don't argue with him. And we may have to work through some things, but ultimately we need to agree with God. This doesn't mean we never sin. We know we do. We're imperfect. God has forgiven us. Jesus died on the cross for that sin. But it's when we sin, which is evil, and call it good, which is not repentance, that's when we put a wedge between us and God. So then, we know we make mistakes, we know we sin, but we repent, God forgives us. It's that, you know, really clinging on to something that we really know is, is wrong that uh, creates a problem in our relationship with God. Verses 13 and 14. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. So pretty straightforward. Do good and love others for the glory of God. Don't worry when you're wronged. You'll be blessed when you do good in spite of that. Don't fear or be troubled. Entrust yourself to God the Father as Jesus did. He'll look after you. It's a promise. Verse 15. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Rather than fearing others or what they can do to you, honor Jesus as holy, meaning our lives are to be centered on our Lord Jesus a reflection of, of him. Nothing else is to come before him. If it does, we remove it and put him first again. Selfish desires, worldly wisdom, circumstances, many other things will come and try to move us away from our allegiance to the Lord. Try and come 
first and bring him lower on our list of priorities. But we are to keep him first in our hearts and obey him. Along with that, we see we're always to be ready to give an answer, a defense or an explanation for the hope that we have in Jesus. If we're living the Christian life that we see uh, Peter describing to us, telling us to do, we will stand out as different. We have to. We cannot blend in with the world if we are doing good to those who would harm us, if we return evil with good, if we are humble, if we're loving, if we're gracious, if our attitudes and actions are that, people around us who watch us, and they do watch us, they especially seem to be watching us when we do make a mistake, but they watch us all the time. And if we're living this life that is so radically different than what the world promotes, they will wonder why. And even if they're hostile to us, they'll wonder why. And they'll especially wonder why if while they're being hostile to us, we're being kind in return. So, are we, so we are to be prepared to graciously give an answer for the hope that we have. And we're, we're to have lives, and I've been convicted of this, does my life really reflect the hope and the joy that I have in knowing the Lord Jesus as my Savior? Having eternal life and also abundant life for each and every day? That is to be how our lives are. No matter what difficulties we have, we're supposed to have that hope and, and reflect that. When we do, people will see. We're, and then we're to be prepared to give an answer and that, for that hope, which is Jesus. We're to have actions that follow his example, and then be willing to give an explanation of the gospel when people wonder what's going on. And then our hope is that they too would experience the Lord Jesus saving them, and they can experience that hope as well. We do make mistakes, people see that, but even in making mistakes, we can ask for forgiveness, we can be humble, we can make right wrongs, and people see that too. Verses 16 and 17. Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Peter's, Peter's made it very clear that suffering for doing good will land you in God's will. Sometimes we may wonder, while I'm suffering, this is going wrong, that's going wrong, I'm in some trial, I must be doing something wrong. Well, that's not necessarily the case. We will face trials. People will mistreat us. It's not about that so much as our response to it. And knowing that, we're to have a clear conscience. Live in such a way that people don't have grounds for the attacks that they're making. That way, when they slander you, they will ultimately be put to shame. Maybe not in the timing you would like, but ultimately, the Lord will look after it. And your actions will glorify God. It should, I believe, actually be a relief to us that we don't have to fight for justice every time someone mistreats us. God will look after it. 
verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus suffered and died once for all sins. He did not do this for his own benefit, but for ours. Jesus is the ultimate example of suffering for the sake of others. And he didn't deserve it. He was holy. We, on the other hand, are guilty. Sometimes we're not guilty of what we're accused of, but ultimately we're guilty of many things. And even though we are guilty, Jesus loved us enough to take our guilt and die on the cross for us. But it didn't right end there. He was raised by the Spirit to have victory over sin and death. 19 and 20, or the start of 20, says this, In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. Now here we have one of those verses that is somewhat difficult as far as a complete explanation goes if we want to get a nice tidy package. We're not given enough information in this text or elsewhere in scripture I think to come up with a like a really dogmatic explanation of what Peter's talking about or describing here. The best explanation I found and we could spend a lot of time this but on this but chosen not to. The best ex explanation seems to be that the spirits are fallen angels and possibly or probably those of Genesis chapter 6 before the flood as this was widely accepted at the time that Peter wrote this letter. So Jesus being resurrected in spirit goes to the place of their confinement, the fallen angels. And this is most likely hell or Hades, and he preached to them. What he preached or proclaimed to them exactly, we don't know because we're not told, but it would seem to be a proclamation of his victory and therefore their doom as Jesus has conquered sin and Satan. And carrying on in verse 20 and 20 through to 22. I'll just read 20 from the beginning again. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So Peter makes a connection between Noah being saved from the waters of judgment and the Christian salvation being connected with the waters of baptism. Not that baptism itself in any way saves us. Instead, it's a symbol of our acceptance 
of, of Jesus as our risen Lord and the cleansing that we have through him. Peter points out, uh, or who Peter points out, uh, Jesus is in heaven at God's right hand. And all angels, all authorities, and all power are subject to him. So here Peter reminds us who we really must ultimately submit to, and that's Jesus. He has the authority. All other authorities are subject to them, to him. And really, ultimately, it's whether they, some authorities do not recognize him in this world, but ultimately all are subject to him. And for the Christian, we submit to each other as he directs. And that, from my studying uh, through Peter's letter here, is ultimately we see Jesus' example and we're to be subject to him. And then he lays out specific ways or roles we're to take in living the Christian life and obeying him. He, he knows us well as humans. He knows our nature. He knows how we act. And I think we need to trust that he knows what's best for us. And ultimately, he says, we entrust ourselves to him and he'll look after us. The context of Peter's instruction is really put others ahead of ourselves. Be selfless. We tend to be selfish. Clearly, we're to submit to God first and foremost, and he'll give us direction from there. And he gives it to us in his word. What stands out to me is we are to serve others and not to worry about how they should be serving us. That's the example Jesus gave. He served. He served others, and he suffered ultimately for doing that. He wasn't a bully. He didn't push he didn't compromise either. But he's the example of love. Uh, he stressed things like humility, grace, the other-centeredness, putting ourselves last or least. When we want to rebel against this, we must check ourselves and obey God. Trust the outcome to Him, even if it doesn't make sense to us. We want to take things into our own hands, right? And that is based in not trusting Him, I think. It's not easy, but it carries great blessing. God has promised to bless us when we do good, when others mistreat us. We need to fight that urge to get others around us to fulfill their roles before God and focus on our own. Strive to fulfill ours first. Follow Jesus with all our hearts. Live selfless lives like Jesus modeled for us. And then as we're blessed, as we have this hope and this joy in our lives, be prepared to give an explanation of the gospel to those around us. They notice, they will ask, we will have opportunities. Now share what God has done for us. There's no more powerful 
uh, testimony than sharing what God has done in your own life. And when we stop and think and look at our lives, we can see that God has done so much. He is so gracious, he is so loving, he is so kind to us. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you first of all for saving us. We owed a debt we could not pay, and you saved us from that debt, from our sin. Thank you for that. We thank you for your, your word, your instruction to us. Thank you for the example we have in Jesus. Help us, Lord, to simply follow you, uh, follow your example, trust you, obey you, uh, trust that you will bless us as you say you will when we follow you. Don't worry, help us not to worry about fighting for our own agendas, for our own causes, but entrust things to you, allow you to work. And Lord, help us. It's so hard to do good to treat people well when they mistreat us, but Lord, help us to follow your example and do that, to be gracious and kind and loving to others uh, when they would do us harm. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us. Uh, I pray for the marriages here and help us as husbands and wives to follow your direction, to submit to you and, and follow your instruction on how to live our daily lives and carry out our roles before you. And Lord, may you be uh, the head of our homes, the head of our lives, the head of our homes. And Lord, we pray that just for your blessing and your grace upon us. And Lord, may we, as part of your body also, not, put, not be looking to put ourselves first, but to put you first and then others and, and not strive for our own gain. And Lord, I thank you for each person here. Lord, you know each one. You know the situations and what's going on. Lord, I pray that you would grant every person here your comfort, your encouragement, uh, your blessing. And may each one of us leave leave here knowing that you love us and that you wish to pour out your grace upon us. I thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.